2012 is an election year, and we can be sure of one thing in any election year, that for the next few months, people are going to be throwing out ideas about what's wrong with America, how things need to be fixed, how things need to be changed, etc. In that spirit, we have an author today who's written a book in that vein, although it's not a political book, which we are keen to talk about. The book is From a Culture of Dependency to a Culture of Success, focusing on what's right about America and the American people. Joining us today to talk about his book is author Yale Wishnick. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Yale. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, yes. Uh, primarily, it's been in education uh, for the last 30, 35 years. Uh, taught school, worked for uh, a number of different associations around the country, uh, spent quite a bit of time in California, and my most recent position has been uh, with the California Teacher Association Institute for Teaching, a nonprofit 501c3 institute uh, dedicated to improving public education throughout California. Uh, so my interests have been primarily in education, but I've done a lot of work also in uh, public and private sector organizations. Well, you started out in education and taken, I guess, a pan back from that, pulled the camera back to take a broader view of American culture. And uh, I guess I'd have to ask, what, what led to your wanting to tackle a book that this, this ambitious? Uh, great question. Uh, initially, uh, uh, the, I was going to write a very small uh, pamphlet, a handbook uh, for uh, parents and teachers regarding the schools and uh, taking a different approach based on the work that I was involved with, the Gates Foundation in California, looking at California's uh, highest poverty, lowest performing high schools in the state. And from the work we learned, uh, which was uh, so different than what we expected, uh, I thought I'd put together a little handbook. And uh, what we found out primarily was that uh, we had it kind of backwards in terms of how we were going to improve our schools. Uh, uh, we were always focusing on what was wrong, and we took the approach finally to take a look at well, what was working in the schools, using that as a foundation to build from. Well, the, uh, after I started working on uh, my, my small little book, I began to realize that this had major implications for our political, economic, and social uh, world that we live in. And uh, from there, started to take a look more at a historical perspective, really kind of uh, more of an arms-laced approach. I uh, looked at it back to the founding of the country and, figured, and started looking at how did we get to be such a great country, uh, the exceptional nature of us, and started realizing as I was reading and, and doing quite a bit of research over about two and a half years, uh, that our founders and uh, early uh, Americans were very strength-based. They looked at what, what, what worked. That's how they built the country. And from there, uh, the book just took off, and uh, I created uh, what, was to be, what was, became a much larger book, uh, a much more comprehensive book, which went, uh, certainly included education, but went way beyond that. Well, your book certainly is filled with a lot of quotes from a lot of interesting people, some very pithy quotes. I'd like to throw one out right now because I think it, uh, I don't know that it summarizes the book, but it certainly uh, captures the spirit of what, what a lot is found in the pages. Oddly enough, it comes from Calvin Coolidge, and I didn't realize this came from uh, our 30th president, but I'd like you to comment on the quote, which is, that nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. 
Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. That's a, quite a quote, and uh, I think, as I, as I discussed in the book, most Americans do not think of Calvin Coolidge when they think <laughs> of great presidents. And I, I found him to be very interesting. That particular quote uh, does, as you're, you're absolutely right, does kind of summarize a lot about the book and really uh, means that um, we, can, we can have all kinds of skills, we can have all kinds of talents, but unless we have that number one, what I found to be also, the number one uh, trait, which is a strong and powerful work ethic, consistency, hanging in there, not giving up, constantly looking for different possibilities and alternatives, but not looking at the problems. And here was the interesting thing that I think Coolidge was telling us as well as what I learned when I worked in the schools, is that we do take a lot of time, put a lot of energy into our problems, regardless of what they might be, but we're always looking at it and how do I fix my situation. And I think what I learned from Coolidge and well as a number of other uh, early founders was that let's stop looking at what's broken. And let's take a look at what's working around us. What's working in my life? What, am I, what do I do well at? What have been my positive experiences? Looking at other individuals and how are they successful and use that as a foundation to improve my situation as opposed to woe is me or uh, how do I fix myself or how do I get a job or how do I get education? How, how should I raise my kids? Look at what's going on that's working and use that as a foundation to build from. Well, you're very critical of a couple aspects of, of, of life. Uh, you have a couple words that you sort of juxtapose. One is, I think, a word that, you've, uh, that is unique to you. You talk about profiteers and politeers. And I thought that was an interesting summary. Uh, how would you describe both of those, and how would you uh, place them in, in terms of the problems that we face? Well, the profiteer and the politeer. Of course, the politeer, we're talking about those political leaders, those politicians that are out there. And then the profiteer, we're talking about the corporate leaders, multinational corporate leaders. And the, po- uh, the politeer and the profiteer, they work together. And what it is, is I, I looked at, uh, as I was reviewing uh, history and looking at common day events, I came up with the conclusion that the politeer today is an individual who primarily is um, describing and, and, and wants to have Americans believe that they are dependent on government. That the politeer is... Uh, the, the, the politeer's major goal in life is to be able to figure out how can I get more and more to people dependent on government, and therefore I will give them services, give them programs, give them entitlements, and I'll continually stay in power. And that's the politeer. And the profiteer is similar. They're looking at, well, how can I sit and, and, and get the public to buy more and more and more, consume more and more and more, without any real need or purpose? Now, those two creatures, when they stand separate, are are bad enough. But what we have today is a situation where they're working together. And that's where we're seeing the the labor force, I believe, being uh, manipulated and and jeopardized by the politeer and the profiteer in terms of working together. For example, the the, uh, uh, profiteer is an individual who is looking to get the cheapest labor that they can uh, out of the American uh, workforce. Or they're going uh, overseas in terms of... uh, uh, outsourcing. Well, the, and the and the politeer is creating legislation and rules that allows that. And what we see, for example, is in the immigration policy, and it's a horrible situation that we have now. But primarily, you see a number of different corporate leaders, who I, of course, refer to again as profiteers, lining up with politeers to create legislation to keep more and more uh, uh, illegal aliens, for example, in the country as part of a workforce to press uh, wages. 
And as a result of that, the standard of living is decreasing. That's one example. Uh, we see it in terms of uh, the food that we eat. Uh, we look at um, factory farms, for example, where our family farms have basically disappeared. And we have these multinational corporate leaders who are now producing food uh, in such a way that we are seeing a number of different problems associated with it. Continually, we have uh, problems with our food in terms of contamination. We see uh, unbelievable amounts of uh, antibiotics being used, steroids being used. And, of course, the politeer, uh, through their bureaucratic uh, uh, administrative agencies, are allowing these things to happen. As a result, our health care is being diminished because, uh, as most uh, the medical profession will talk about, our immune system is now at risk. So, in other words, when we talk about the politeer and the profiteer, they're working together to make more and more Americans dependent on the government and on the private sector as opposed to more of a free market place and more uh, uh, liberty and independence on the political side. Well, I want to expand on that remark in a second, but before I do, Yale, I have to pull a quote out of your book, which I'd never seen anywhere else, which I think just has to be put before our, our listening audience, which uh, comes from another U.S. president, Lincoln, who probably, I imagine, circa 1860, looking ahead to the future, said, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, and an era of corruption in high places will follow. And the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until all wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. Which is a hell of a quote. Yeah, it really is. And it's prophetic in so many ways that Lincoln uh, was able to, to take what he was seeing at the time and, and, and take a look at the future. And I think we can see that in a variety of ways. Solyndra is an excellent example, and it's just one example. This is not a part, and I hope anyone who reads my book realizes after they get through it, I'm really, this isn't really a partisan issue. And Lincoln's uh, view of what was happening is, is what we really see today, and it certainly is uh, uh, closely connected with the notion of politeers and profiteers, that um, more and more wealth is being centralized. We see more and more uh, corporate uh, entities being less concerned about what happens in America and more concerned about what happens around the world. And as that occurs, they have their friends, the crony capitalism, as it's generally referred to, basically allow them through various legislations and regulations to acquire this kind of wealth. But it's all along the lines of allowing uh, or creating a situation where more and more Americans then are dependent on uh, the corporate world and on the politician just to survive in a lot of respects. So Lincoln, Lincoln saw that, and it is interesting, especially given what's going on today, that uh, uh, he was able to really foretell what could happen. And his final point in terms of the republic, uh, we are seeing right now uh, so many of our basic institutions at risk. And I, what I mean by that is, we, as I look at it, we have three pillars in, 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 in our country, the individual, the family, and local communities. And I think everyone would certainly say at this point that uh, the individual, the individual American, is losing more and more of their freedom, their liberty. And what I mean by that is their ability to acquire their own wealth, to make decisions on their own without necessarily depending on, on other governments, on the government. Uh, and then you have the family, which is being uh, obviously uh, marginalized in almost every way in terms of the role of parents, 
uh, just basically what they should feed their kids is being challenged. Uh, exercise, every kind of thing that you can imagine that was a traditional family role is being challenged. And then finally, our local communities. Our local communities are disappearing. I dare say most people uh, do not know their neighbor at all anymore. That, uh, you know, it used to be years ago when it came down to protecting uh, violence or, or children from violence, parents would watch other kids and, and uh, there would all of this be the protective nature, this net that would be thrown over a local community. We look at our communities in California. So many of them now are either bank going or are considering bankruptcy. So our, the basic pillars of our society are starting to crumble. And when that occurs, as Lincoln, you know, said in terms of of, of his prediction, the republic goes, the country goes, because at that point then the centralized federal government really steps in and really begins to control everything that we do. Well, I must say your book certainly does not look to political solutions. The whole thrust of it appears that, uh, that, that, that what you're looking for are personal solutions. So as we close, I would like to ask you, uh, what would you like to see done? What, what can we do as individuals? You're absolutely right. Uh, you, you definitely hit, hit it on the nail on the head. I'm, uh, I believe right now that we cannot put our fate and our future, whether it's individuals, uh, families, or communities, in who we elect and don't elect. Obviously, we're going to participate in the electoral process, and, we're, and we should do that. But the reality comes down to it is each individual, each family, and each community has to really take it upon themselves to become um, more independent thinkers. I refer to it as strength-based thinking as opposed to deficit-based thinking that we are not deficits. We have all kinds of strengths and abilities that we have uh, from our vast experiences that we might have and then from everything around us. And that each individual needs to do a, uh, a scan of their environment, think about their, their lives and all of the great things that they have done, and use that as a foundation to solve their problems and challenges. And I think from a family perspective, we need to begin to start taking a look at families recognizing what, what their whole purpose is, what their meaning is, what their value is, because until such a time as individuals and families begin to, to seriously look at what, what makes their life meaningful, what is it that we want to really do in our lives, write that down, put it together, talk to each other, then at that time they can start seeing we can do these things. The whole idea of, you know, sleep on it. The whole idea that we don't solve an immediate crisis or problem in our life, but rather let's sleep on it. We wake up in the morning and all of a sudden, metaphorically speaking, things start looking brighter. And it's from that perspective that I believe we can begin to start changing things around us. I, uh, I, guess in, I guess when we think about our problems and challenges today, how can we in any way compare ourselves to the early pioneers that crossed this country in covered wagons? If those folks looked at life the way we're currently doing, that we have to depend on other people, that our problems are so overcoming, that my life is just, I have one challenge after another, they would have never got out of bed, much less in a covered wagon. <laughs> so I would say at this point, what we need to begin to do is start taking a look at all of our opportunities before us, recognize that we do have a lot of talents, uh, even as individuals, look at those people that are successful and use that as a framework then to begin to overcome at least some of the challenges that we face. Again, the, the, the idea is that uh, uh, today we, that uh, individuals need to begin to take a look at uh, uh, the, their strengths that they have and to, to stop focusing on their own deficits. And I guess just closing with the idea that uh, there are so many individuals around us, we see them every single day, that have unbelievable challenges. Uh, we look at some of our, 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 our men and women coming back from Iraq uh, with with major injuries, and yet somehow they're able to overcome them. 
they're able to do unbelievably remarkable things because they did not focus on what, what appeared to be a major deficit, a loss of a limb, they can't see, uh, a leg, an arm, whatever it might be, and yet they'd be able to overcome those things because not foc- they didn't focus on their deficit, they focused on the great strengths that they have, used that as a foundation, and rebuilt their lives. And I think all of us, all of us, regardless of our situation, should use that as a model to uh, to to really not only make ourselves what we want to be, but actually just reach our destiny. My final comment would be from the first quote you have in your book, which is apropos to what you're saying right now, which you quoted Woody Allen as saying that, I've often said the only thing standing between me and greatness is me. It's words for all of us. The book is from a culture of dependency to a culture of success, focusing on what's right about America and the American people. We've been speaking with author Yale Wishnick. And before we go, Yale, could you mention uh, a website people can go for more information? Because I know particularly you'll be making a personal appearance in the Sacramento area next month, and people may want to come out and meet you personally. Yeah, they, uh, anyone uh, that's interested can go to www.strengthbasednation, all one word, Com. That's www.strengthbasednation.com. Very good. All right, and before we leave our second segment today, I want to note uh, that I have been making my own personal effort to improve myself and change my way of thinking by following up with something we talked about not just last year, but the year before on this program, which was putting in a kayak and crossing San Francisco Bay. This last Saturday, I was joined by my travel companion, Gordon Smith, by putting a kayak in at Carvalho Point at Fort Baker on the Marin side of the Golden Gate Bridge near the North Tower, and paddling across to Ghirardelli Square. Then paddling from there, while in the process of dodging some freighters out to Alcatraz, then turning south over to Treasure Island before winding up over at the Berkeley Marina. It was one hell of a fun day, and I wish I'd had a helmet cam to take some pictures of what we saw while we were dodging the wakes of cargo ships, uh, cavorting with some dolphins, which were feeding in a giant eddy uh, next to a rip-snorting current at near-maximum flood coming between the towers of the Golden Gate. And some boats racing around in preparation for the America's Cup. We saw numerous uh, catamarans, uh, uh, high-tech catamarans, I might add, out there on the bay. And all I can say is this was some world-class adventure located right here in our own backyards. When we first put in, there was a gaggle of uh, kayakers who immediately turned and paddled against the maximum flood current and went out the Golden Gate... I guess they were intent upon getting a maximum workout. I mean, when that, when that current comes through there, it's about like four and a half knots. When it goes out, the maximum ebb can sometimes hit speeds of like, I think, six or seven knots. Anyway, it was most assuredly a grand adventure, and I want to talk about it at greater length in a future show, but the time is not there today. Of course, as the America Cup unfolds, the, the eyes of the world, perhaps, will be on San Francisco Bay, which uh, by all accounts is... One of those areas where if, if, you can, if you can sail in San Francisco Bay, you can sail anywhere. And I, I do have to note that some of the eddies we saw swirling around out there with the currents going one way and, you know, giant back currents coming another way, and to say nothing of the wind and the tides and the, the giant wakes coming off these boats, 
Well, it's all a sight to behold, which will have to be talked about, you know, like I say, at greater length on a future show. But let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for some science talk in segment three. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting in the evening car Watching the ships roll in Then I'll watch them roll away Watching the tide 